Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Real Life Church. <laughs> it is a well-oiled machine. Um, just so you know, at Real Life Church, we're in our beginning um, sort of stages at the moment. We only started meeting like this um, from September. This is only our second term. We're about to finish, um, and it's reflected kind of in our size and what we're doing. But we um, passionately believe God has called us here um, to build a church that is large, influential, and reproducing. That's what's on our heart. That's what we feel God has spoken to us. And uh, we are about that work. We meet here on a Sunday. We meet midweek in life groups. And uh, we believe real life is about having a relationship with Jesus, following the model of Jesus, and changing our world with Jesus. And that's what we're trying to build here. What we're going to be doing this morning is, in a moment, I'll be preaching from the Bible. We do that every week. Um, At that point, the children will go and do some age-appropriate stuff um, just out there in the goldfish bowl. After that, they will all come back in here and we will worship God together, use of singing and gifts. Um, And we hope to sort of finish by 12, 12, 15. It's not an exact science, but that's what we're aiming for. All right. Ephesians. Book of Ephesians, please. Please grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We've been going through the book of Ephesians uh, for a little while now, um, bit by bit, examining what uh, God has to say to us through this fantastic um, letter. And last time, we've kind of, the last two weeks, we covered the um, bits of chapter 2, and we're now moving into um, the beginning of chapter 3. And just by way of recap, the beginning of chapter 2 was a fantastic section we took about three weeks ago through it all because basically it was our condition before God and how God moved in power in our lives to save us and our response as a result of that. So it was very much bad news. I spent a week telling you all the bad news about your condition, what you're like, a sinner before God, an enemy, alienated. Then we looked a week at looking at God's wonderful grace breaking in and changing that situation in our life. Not based on us, because we have no merit in ourselves, but all by God's grace towards us. And then the third week, we looked at our response to that, the fact that we were God's workmanship, we were God's masterpiece, but he had planned works for us to do, good us to walk into. And then last week, we looked at a longer section, the last bit of chapter 2, at looking at kind of the same thing of the first section, but on a wider level about how God had brought, uh, reconciled not only man to God, but man to one another and particularly in a racial sense, and the example Paul uses there is Jew and Gentile, the biggest racial cultural divide kind of in history, God had brought that together. He had broken down the division between them through dietary laws, through the the holy days and the feast days, all the ritual holiness, and actually in Christ, he had brought both Jew and Gentile together into one new man, one new kind of humanity, one new community, and so they would no longer be that... Um, animosity across the divide. They would be brought together and they would be one new man. And that's what Paul's been talking about. He talked about us, kind of almost what happens on a very individual level. And then the second section was us on a corporate level of how God brings us together. And then as a result of that, we roll into the beginning of chapter 3, which I'm just going to read that first section. It says, um, down to verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship grace that was given to me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made, not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same bodies and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Okay, big idea of what we're going to do. The big idea of this sermon is that God has revealed a mystery that is to be made known through the church and it is their responsibility then to proclaim that mystery. So God has revealed a mystery and that he's made it known through the church, his people, and they are then responsible for proclaiming that mystery to the world. And we're going to look at kind of two sections in this passage. The first one is the revelation to Paul, um, which is the first sort of six verses, and the next one is the commission to Paul. So we've got the revelation of what Paul has been shown and then we've got the commission that he has been given as a result, as we begin this, begin this passage, it starts for this reason. And what Paul is about to do here is he's about to pray, but he gets sidetracked. Because if you look forward to verse 14, he comes back to for this reason. So he clearly was about to pray for something, because he gets into the prayer later on, but he kind of goes off on a sidetrack, which is what we're going to look at today. Next time we're going to come back to his prayer, which is verses 14 um, to 21, that he prays as a result. So he's seen what's happened in chapter 2, how God has reconciled man to himself and man to one another, and he's excited and he wants to pray into that. But before we get into that, we're going to look at this kind of diversion that he goes off. Now, Paul, he describes himself in two ways. The first one there is a prisoner in Christ Jesus. And he actually says it's on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul is actually physically imprisonment. It's not kind of like a figurative term. He is imprisonment at this time. If you read Acts 21, the sort of the back end of it, you find out how he got in this situation. He went to Jerusalem and it was because he was accused while being there of basically by the Jews, the Jewish um, kind of groups there, of kind of watering down, of denying the Jewish laws, the Jewish teachings. And so he was accused, effectively, of breaking their law. And as a result, he kind of got arrested. There was rioting. There was a lot going on. And the kind of the Romans were like, what's going on here with these Jews trying to attack another one? And Paul appealed to Caesar as in prison. And that begins kind of the end of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. So Paul is literally in prison. And as he said, it's on behalf of you Gentiles. That is dead true. The reason he is there in prison is because he proclaimed the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And that was his mission. It got around proclaiming, planting churches and and telling what God had done, what Jesus had done, how they could come into faith with him without going through the kind of the laws, the rituals, circumcision he talked about last time, dietary laws, all those things. And as a result, 
from the Jews were very angry. And so for Paul to say, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, that is, he's not blowing out of portion. He is. He's in prison. It's because those who he's writing to who are Gentiles, he is adamant that he is going to proclaim the message to them, even if it results in his own imprisonment. The second thing he described himself as um, is the steward, a stewardship of God's grace that has been given to me for you. Paul is a steward. Now, a steward is someone who takes care of um, important things. They're the person who's entrusted with something and they have a responsibility uh, to look after it. And Paul has been entrusted with um, the office of an apostle to take the, the message, and he's also been trusted with the gospel itself, that, that message, that body of teaching that he is to give to others in planting churches and passing it on and training other men. So Paul is very aware of his stewardship, that he has been given something that he must hold on to, and it is for the Gentiles. He is the, the apostle to the Gentiles, that's what he's to do. Um, and that stewardship, actually, that Paul has is something that is applicable to us today because we too have been given that stewardship. We too, as members of God's church, God's community, we actually have received this teaching. We have received the gospel. And we are entrusted with something that we are then to communicate to the world. There, are, you know, there is a responsibility to fall on leaders to teach the church, but there's a responsibility to fall on all of our believers to take the message, to let it change us, affect our lives, but also to communicate that on to others, that they too then would come into relationship with Jesus and the cycle would continue. And we are, this this idea of stewardship is something that that spreads throughout our lives. It's the message of the gospel. We're also called to be stewards in the Bible with with our money, with our relationships, everything we have, our jobs, our employment, we read through the letters and the, the exhortations as, as they come through. It's to be good stewards of what we got, what God has given us, we are to look after and see grow. And I know this for me personally, my name actually means steward. That's what steward means. It's a derivative of that word. And so this whole idea of stewardship is something particularly I find um, really kind of close to me because I look at my life and think, what has God given me? Well, he's given me a wife, he's given me children, he's given me a job, he's given me responsibility in the church, he's been given me his son and the message to proclaim to others and all those things that come from God, the things we looked at at the beginning of Ephesians, um, forgiveness, adoption, redemption, the Holy Spirit to seal us and actually we are to take that responsibility seriously as a steward and then to then work that out. It's not something we just take for ourselves and enjoy and, or we just disdain and don't look after it. Stewards are people who take care of responsibility of things that don't actually belong to them. That's one of the keys. The grace that we've been given actually is God's grace, it's described that, and we've been given it as a gift and we are to look after it um, for us, um, for others. And so Paul is a steward and he is fundamentally aware of what he's been given and which is what is driving him on his mission as an apostle to proclaim the gospel. Even in prison, he is writing to the churches that he has planted in Ephesus as being one of them and saying, actually, remind you of what you're doing. Remind you of the message that I have given you. So Paul is a prisoner and he is a steward. And what is he a steward of? The way he describes it in this particular case, he uses the word mystery. He uses it three times in verses 3, 4 and 6. He describes there is a mystery that he has been given that he is to proclaim. And in English, uh, the English language, when we think of mystery, you might think of uh, mystery novels, um, TV programs that are mysteries, and it it kind of points to something that is dark, that is obscure, that is secret, that you kind of can't understand, and you have to try and work it out, and even at the end you're a bit 
scratch your head, have I got it? That's kind of a mystery, something that isn't clear. However, in the Greek, when they use the word mystery, it has a different meaning, which we have to grasp. And the meaning is something that was once secret that is open, almost an open secret, something that was closely guarded but has now been given and and been shown to all. So this mystery that Paul has been given isn't something that he is to hold on to and hide. It's something that he is to openly and boldly proclaim. And so when we read the mystery, think of something as an open secret, something that we should be giving out to people. It was once hidden, but now it's open and we have a responsibility to tell others about it. And this mystery has been made known to him. It says... This mystery was made known to me by revelation. Now this is a reference back to Paul's own um, conversion experience initially on the Damascus Road. He was going, going along on a mission to destroy the church and God met him powerfully, um, knocked him off his horse, blinded him. Um, one of the more spectacular conversion uh, experiences in the Bible. And this, he was given a revelation. And revelation basically means unveiling. The book of Revelation in the, at the end of the New Testament just means an unveiling, something that was hidden where a kind of a curtain has been drawn back and you can now see it. So he's been given a revelation of this mystery, something that was once hidden, God has chosen to reveal to him. It's God's mystery. God is deciding to show it. He showed it to Paul and it has now been made known to him. And it says, he says, as I have written briefly, that's just referring back to what he's already written in Ephesians. He's kind of done two chapters already. So I've already started talking to you about it. There's, there's other letters you can read if you want more. Um, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and our prophets. Okay, what this means is, if we go back to the kind of the story of the gospel, going right back. It begins in the garden where there's the prophecy about the serpent crusher coming, the one who would crush the serpent's head. Christ is revealed there, um, very kind of uh, like a little sort of chink in what's going to become a fuller revelation. We move forward to Abraham. God chooses Abraham and says, I will come um, and I will make you a great nation. And then we follow through the story of Abraham, becomes, goes down to Egypt through um, Joseph and the family. They become a mighty nation. They're pulled out of Egypt by God through Moses, go into the promised land through Joshua, take the promised land. We have the judges, we have the kings, and then we have the eventual decline and the destruction of um, Israel and Judah as the two kingdoms. The going into exile, then coming back with exile with Nehemiah and Ezra. Then we have the, the period of silence, prophetically speaking, for John the Baptist and the Messiah to come. And so the thread of the gospel is all through the Old Testament. But what Paul is saying there is saying it was not made known. And what he's, what he's getting at isn't the fact that it's not in the Old Testament. In fact, the manner of it isn't in the Old Testament. This whole idea of Jew and Gentile coming together is not made known, not made clear in the Old Testament. There are hints in places like um, as Isaiah where it says the Gentiles would come in to that mountain of the house of the Lord. They would come in, they would worship with Jews. But the manner of fact of God taking the Jew and the Gentile and rather adding Gentiles to the Jewish people, he's actually taken both of them and created something new a new community, a new humanity, uh, one new man. And Paul is saying, actually, the manner of that you didn't get 
It wasn't made known. It's now being revealed. This mystery is now an open secret that I am proclaiming to you that God is going to take Jew and Gentile. All ethnic, racial, social, cultural barriers are being destroyed and I'm creating a new man in God. And it was revealed by the Spirit, reference to the Holy Spirit, and it's been given to the apostles and prophets. That's referring to New Testament apostles and prophets who proclaim this message to the church. And he spells out there, uh, what this actually means. This, uh, verse 6, this mystery is that the Jews are fellow heirs. That's a reference back to Abraham. So they, they, they may not be able to claim physical descendancy from Abraham, I being part of the Jewish kind of uh, lineage, ancestral line. But they are now fellow heirs in Christ because something bigger and greater has come and superseded that. And by faith, they become heirs of that promise, it says in Galatians. They are fellow members of the same body, which is what we looked at last time, how they've been incorporated, Jew and Gentile, incorporated together into one new man. And it also says that they share in the promise. They share in the promise. All the things that we've looked about through Ephesians, particularly a bit at the end of um, chapter 1, verse 14, where it talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. God himself comes to dwell within his people, and he's coming to dwell within Jews and Gentiles. And as a result of that, we both have access to the Father. And these privileges all come through Christ so it says at the end there, Christ through the gospel. The gospel message is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's what it comes back to. Always Jesus. If you want to sum up what we're about as a church, as a people, it's all about Jesus. That's what we're about. And he says, in Christ, when we come back to him, we become this one new man, the Gentiles have privileges as Jewish brothers, and we've become this one new humanity. So he's, to sum up, he is, he's saying there's this, been this double union. There's the union of man to himself. There's also the union of man to God. We talked about uh, vertical reconciliation and horizontal reconciliation last time, how God has brought all of them together in Christ. And that is the substance of the mystery. The bit is now open that should be proclaimed from the rooftops that things that would normally divide us, which first of all is sin over us, between us and God has been broken, but things that divide us as humanity all our cultural, racial differences, social differences, anything we can define to divide us, we go after, have been broken down and been brought together in Christ. And I don't know what what it's like when you became a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, what it was like when you got revelation, when you got to see this thing. Paul talks about gaining revelation. There was an unveiling. And I can still remember vividly when I had my first revelation of my sin. I don't know if you remember that time when your sin was exposed before you. And I got taken from being a proud, arrogant, self-righteous, religious Pharisee who thought I was right with God because I was morally good and better than my university flatmates who were out drinking and partying. Thought I was, And then God showed me the mirror and said, do you know what you're like? You're, just, you're filthy before me because you think you can earn your way to a pure and holy God. And I remember being utterly broken by that. I mean, weeping and just appalled at my own hypocrisy that I had lived out for years, really thinking I was morally superior to those around me. I mean, I really thought that. Um, But God just revealed that to me. like It was like literally like a curtain coming away and you saw this mirror and I realised I was dressed in rags rather than the kind of cool garments I thought I had on. I remember getting a revelation after that of Christ, who he was and what he did actually understanding that when Christ died on that cross, it was my sin that put him there. I deserve to be there in his place. 
yet he willingly took the physical punishment, but also the, the spiritual and emotional separation from his Father in heaven. And I still remember that day in a church meeting just being, being blown out by that. And it, it was that song that says something like, was it, once again I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by mercy and broken inside. And I, I actually was. It wasn't just a, a nice song. I was broken by what God had done. And I saw Christ as this suffering, risen king who had saved me. I also remember the time when I had the revelation um, about the church I don't know how you were when you came into Christianity, but me, the church, was a necessary evil. I love Jesus. He saved me from my sin. And kind of part of my cross-carrying was going to church <laughs> with other believers. And I thought, well, you've got to go because that's kind of part of the rules. And no job's, you know, no job's perfect. You've all got the kind of the downsides. And so being a Christian, follow Jesus, I, I need to go to church. And so I got into church. But I remember going away um, to a kind of a summer camp thing and there were many, many people there and I remember going along and thinking this is cool because it's kind of got a concerty feel and that's great but I remember a preacher standing there and just declaring the truth of the church and how that was central to God's plan and how we were part of that and it wasn't an optional extra to Christianity and it wasn't just something that you had to do or even endure it's something that you enjoyed and you willingly got involved and it was a gift from God to us as his new redeemed people that would take the message to the ends of the earth and I remember being undone and literally since that day I have been passionate about Christ but I've been passionate about his church and building it and I remember saying I'm going to dedicate my life to building God's church by his grace, being, seeing it grow, multiply, expand and I'll do anything I can to be part of that and so we need to be people of revelation, we need to seek it, we need to go after God, we need to be getting into his word, getting into his presence, being around his people, because it's, like, it's through that that God speaks and, and revelation comes. I've learned more through being around God's people and being in those situations than just being on my own thinking I can do it. And so Paul was a man undone by a revelation that, that changed his life. He comes on the scene... Acts chapter was it, 7, the stoning of Stephen, he's converted, I think it's Acts chapter 9. You read the rest of Acts and the epistles and his life was transformed by revelation. And we need to be people who go after that um, as much as we can. And this revelation that he's received then results in action. Let's move on, verse 7. Verse 7 is kind of a transition verse um, from the first sort of section to the next. It says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. Everything is about God's grace. It began, that section began with God's grace, the stewardship of God's grace. It's now ending with God's grace. It kind of brackets everything that's gone in, in the middle. It's all about God. It's all about God working in our lives. It's not about our earning ourselves, getting through. It's all about God. The fact that he knew the mystery was because God revealed it to him. God's the one who pulled back the curtain so he could see what was behind it. It's not about us. And God has um, called Paul to preach to the Gentiles. It says, I was made a minister. That's an act of God. There's passive there. Paul was there. God made him. God pulled him from being where he was and made him a minister. Paul is probably the least likely person to become a preacher of Jesus because he was someone who in prison and killed Christians. That was what his job description was and he enjoyed it and he thought he was doing a good thing by it. God, uh, Jesus showed up, showed him the error of his ways and only God's power can make that possible. Only God's power can turn a persecutor to a preacher. Like um, 
and turn people's lives around. And we are all recipients of that. And Paul is someone who has received God's call, receives God's election, and receives God's enabling power. If we're going to proclaim the gospel, if we're going to preach the revelation that we have received, go on this commission that God's called us to. We need God's enabling power. You cannot do it alone. Don't ever get into that position. It's a day-by-day, humbling walk before God, saying, help me do what you need to do. Fill me with your spirit. You dwell in his word, you pray, and then you go out and you work by his grace, not by your power. And Paul had completely grasped that because he'd have a revelation of God, but also at the same time he had a revelation of who he was before God. Because it goes on and it says, "For uh, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints. I don't know if you've got spiritual Christian heroes if you've been a Christian a while, you invariably have a Christian hero. Someone from the past who you know, did great things, a missionary, a preacher, someone who was in social action and changed culture. And there are many, many of them down through the centuries. And one of the premier ones outside Jesus is Paul. Paul is an absolute legend Christian history. He wrote some of the Bible. You know, he, he planted churches. He was on the forefront. Yet he describes himself as the least of all the saints. And that is a fascinating thing. Because if I was hanging around with Paul, you know, and you're getting on with your job and you're you know, trying to raise a family and you're you know, trying to tell a few friends about Jesus. Paul, what have you been done? Well, planted this many churches and I've travelled all around here. I've been shipwrecked, beaten for my faith. I've raised some people from the dead. Um, you know, I, I'm doing all right. And then he goes, I'm the least of all the saints. Where does that make me? Oh, really? Um, you know, I read my Bible this morning, you know, that you wrote, actually. Um, yeah, it's pretty good stuff. But Paul, what Paul has is he has a revelation of what God has done in his life. That's what he's doing. It's not false humility. It's actually being aware of what he's been saved from. And when we're aware of what we're saved from, not just what we're saved to, it's good to have both. If, you just, if you're just aware of what you're saved from, you kind of focus inward, self-pity. If you're focused on just what you're being saved to... You have this self-righteous, triumphalistic kind of anti-great, God should have saved me and I deserve all that. But it's, you have to hold the two in tension. And when you look at what I've been saved from and what I've been saved through, it produces a humility in your heart and a worship and praise to Jesus. But at the result of this God's grace, he has to, he's got two things. He's going to preach the gospel and he has to make it plain. That's what it says. I am, though on the very least of all the saints, the grace has been given me to preach to the, the Gentiles the unsearchable, key word, riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable means too deep to fathom, too vast to explore. It can mean inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable, and infinite. It is absolutely vast. It's why um, when we, you know, you hear preachers and you think they're going to preach on the same passage you've heard before. You might have even heard this one preached before. Um, you might have heard someone kind of do the sort of the standard simple gospel message multiple times, and yet when you hear it again, you are undone again. And that's because it's unsearchable. You can preach the gospel again and again in all its variety and we still learn something and we are still changes because it is an unsearchable thing. You cannot get to the bottom of it. I don't know if you've been reading in the news lately, um, the, the film director James Cameron is going to go down to the deepest point on earth, I think it is, the, the, the Mariana Trench in the whatever sea it is, Southern Sea, Pacific Ocean. And he's going to go down, I think it's something like seven miles don't quote me on that, but it's a long way down. And he's got this, he's got this kind of little 
it looks like a little kind of torpedo thing. He's going to get in on his own and go down to the bottom. Because uh, I think no one's gone down there on their own before. I think someone's gone down there like in a pair. He's going down on his own. But the point is, he's going to get to the bottom. And I think he's going to drop a camera to look and see what fish are there. And then he's going to come back up, assuming he makes it, because it's quite a dangerous thing. But the point is, it's explorable. Even though it's so far down and you've got to have all these safety features and they've done all these years of planning and research and training and they're waiting for a calm day to go down, this it's explorable. You can get to the bottom. You can look. God's grace is inexplorable. You cannot get to the bottom. You can keep going, keep plumbing. You can walk with the Lord decades and yet still at the end of it, there's still more to see. And he is, that, he is a job to preach the unsearchable reaches of Christ, which means that preachers are never going to be out of a job. Because there's always something more to say, which is really good for you guys listening, because like, we can just keep going. We'll just keep going, because there is so much more to say, which is great for us, because if you could you know, line up everything up with God, he wouldn't be God. If you could get all of it, he's not worth worshipping anyway. And he is to preach this message, he is to reach it. Then it says he is to make it plain. Uh, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. To bring to light is to shed light upon something, to make something understandable, something that is dark. You shine a light, you can suddenly see it. Um, you can see it in its kind of clarity. This time I'm having experience of a lot now. We have a seven-week-old at home who likes to wake up in the night and feed. When you wake up and he's kind of yelling, nothing's distinct, nothing, because it's dark. You flick the lights on, you're temporarily blinded, and then your eyes adjust and you can see. And that's what it's like with the, the gospel. Paul is to make plain what it's got so that people can see it, they can understand it. I have this experience at school all the time. I'm teaching children ranging kind of five, from 5 to 11. You have something you've got to teach them. What's the first thing you do? You break it down into manageable steps so they can get it, so they can follow the train, and thus they learn and they grow. And we are to do that with the gospel. We are to make it plain to people. That doesn't mean kind of dumb it down, and, and hide away from truth, but say it in a way that people understand. If we're going to use big Christian words, redemption, adoption, election, we need to make sure we, people are understanding it, because the gospel, in essence, is quite simple. Its ramifications are infinite and huge, but in essence, it's a very simple thing, but we are to make it plain to people as much as we can. And so Paul is to do that, he's to bring light to everyone, the plan um, of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities. Manifold just means many-sided or multicoloured, richly diverse. And if you, if you remember back to when we went through Ephesians chapter 1, the first section, it talked about election, redemption, forgiveness, uh, sin, um, adoption. There were many, many things. We took a while trying to go through them. Sealing with the Spirit there was at the end. That's the manifold wisdom of God. There are, it's many-sided, it's many-coloured. The word was used in the Greek, it was used to describe woven carpets that had many threads running through it of colour, garlands of flowers that had loads of flowers and colours and variety in, and embroidered cross and even uh, decorated crowns that had jewels and all the bits on it. There was much to, much to it, much to see. And this manifold wisdom of God in this context refers to a multiracial, multi-ethnic community of believers who have come together, demonstrate something of the variety of humanity, but have received what God has done in their lives and had their lives transformed. And that together speaks something of God because it says it's um, through the church. Through the church. And that is a reference to the church 
kind of universal, which is all believers from all times, all together. So there is that wide rangingness of the church, but also a reference to a local expression, just like we have here, where Jew and Gentile, that would be on Paul's mind, are brought together, cultural barriers are are broken down, and they can come together, worship together, live together, learn together, grow together, and there's no superiority depending on their background, education, etc., etc., but actually everyone is level before Christ because we're all sinners saved by grace. And this then is demonstrated to the cosmos. It says it is demonstrated to, uh, made known to rulers, authorities in heavenly places. So there is a, there's a watching world before us, you will see, but, but, but behind that, there are the unseen spiritual realms, both good and evil. There is the Satan, his demons, that realm. There's also the angelic forces that love the Lord and serve him, who are watching what we're doing. And the fact that God has brought this humanity together is a demonstration of his grace and it's not only displayed to humans around, but actually to these unseen spiritual forces around, that they see that God's grace is working and God's plan, and it brings awe um, to those who watch. Um, and what this means is for the church that actually that the church isn't going anywhere. We're here to demonstrate something to a world, both seen and unseen, about what God has done in us. So whatever you read about churches in decline, churches closing, which will be true on a local specific sense or even a nationwide sense in a particular nation, on a general global scale, that isn't happening. The church is there to display the manifold wisdom of God and it is going to grow and it is going to multiply and it is going to continue. Because it says in the beginning of verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose of God. So that's before the creation of the world and after it, when God has wrapped it up, the church is there to display something. Even in eternity future, the church will be there displaying something of God's grace and God's wisdom, which means that when we are faced, particularly in this nation, in this culture, with atheism, with secularism, with pluralism, all these other isms coming at us and saying, trying to break it down, trying to dilute the gospel, there are many gods, there's no God, you cannot kind of get everything in, we don't want to push God out, we want to push him aside. The church and the gospel will prevail. God is ruling and reigning. Jesus is on his throne. He's not getting off. And the church will be triumphant. It will grow. In a local sense, churches have struggles. Some do close. But many, many all over this world are growing and multiplying in their tens of thousands. And so, however you look at the church and you think of the church and you see us here in this little room and there isn't that many of us, you know, but we're all right. There's a few of us. And whatever people say, oh, you're not small, you're not going to grow, you know, all this, why are you doing this? Behind that all is the eternal purpose of God. The church is going to grow, it's going to multiply, it's going to be there, and that is what God has planned, it's his purpose. And I don't know about you, but being God, I think his plans are going to come to pass. One, he's God, two, he said it in the Bible, and three, I believe it, because I think it's always good to believe with Go with God, believe with him, rather than some blog or newspaper reporter who says it's not going to work. And so this was planned out by God and has been realised with Jesus Christ, who is Lord, he's described as Lord, he's ruling and reigning. This thing can't go um, away. And it says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. This comes back to what Paul talked about last time, about having access by the same Spirit of the Father. The Jew and Gentile come together 
but we can come with bold, confident access before God. I believe that's a reference to prayer. So actually we are to pray and ask requests of God about the church, about those in the church, brothers and sisters, we've done it this morning even with Philip and Wendy. That actually, and even as we worship, we come boldly before God, not through our own merit, but for what Christ has done. And we do it joyfully and willingly. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. Paul's suffering in prison, but he an eternal purpose plan of God that is outworking itself in creation. Let me quickly conclude, and then we will finish. Um, okay, a th- um, few things I want to just earth in it. First, all about the church. The first one, the church is central to history. The church is central to history. There have been times when the church has been on ascendance in certain places and there's times when it's kind of on decline. But the church is central to history. It's not going anywhere. The future has a church. It does. Even in in particular nations, kind of the Western, it seems to be in decline. But in the global south, the church is flourishing and multiplying. And I seem to hear kind of stories of People, we originally, 100, 200, 300 years ago, sent missionaries out to places to proclaim the gospel because there was nothing there, or very little. And many men and women went and sacrificed much to take the gospel. It seems that those places are sending them back to the UK and Western Europe and places like that to say, right back at you, we'll come and proclaim the good news. And I'm all for that, people proclaim the gospel. But the point is, the church isn't going anywhere. The church will always be here, and it's going to grow and multiply, and the glory of God will spread and cover the entire earth. The church is sent gospel, which means, it says, Jesus said, this mystery, Paul says, this mystery is being made known where? Through the church. The manifold wisdom of God is being displayed through the church not through an individual believer on their own doing church by themselves, which some people believe. I really, I get violently aggressive sometimes when when people have that attitude. It's through the church, corporate, and whether we like it or not, there is a corporate dynamic to our relationship with God. We can sometimes individualise it, or Western individual thinking, my relationship with God, which is important. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 clarifies that. But then Paul immediately goes on to say it's corporate, there's a dynamic where we have to come together. You're going to grow in maturity as you rub up and up against one another as believers, as you become part of a body, as your, your, kind of your sins are exposed and dealt with and you're encouraged and spurred on into greater kind of exploits of faith in Jesus. That's what it's all about. So we have to be in the church. So, and the church as a whole is the one who is to steward this mystery, this gospel message that we proclaim because people not only hear what we say, they watch our lives and they watch how you act and they watch how you interact with others. And I remember being in um, churches and I never forget a story of a couple I met who were are, who are great friends of ours, um, an older couple, and they were called Janet and John. No joke, that was their name. And uh, they, um, they got saved in their late 50s um, in a church man and I were in about 10 years ago. And I never forget their testimony, which they kept banging on about the years we knew them, was that actually we heard people talk about God. We heard people talk about Jesus. We even met um, a Christian, because the church leader at the time actually lived next door to them. You know, so, um, so they kind of couldn't get away from it. And so they heard it. He said, but what got us was when we came among you. And they went along to kind of just parties, social gatherings type things. They eventually kind of entered into a sort of a place like this 
Um, and they said, what got us was when we found out what you said matched up with how you acted. And actually we came into a community of people and we saw that what you were speaking was being lined up with how you're acting. You were walking the talk. Is that right? Talk the talk, walk the walk. You were doing what you said you were going to do. And we saw Jesus at work in your life. There was such a different group of people, different ages, different backgrounds, different ethnicity, different cultures, and we saw something and it got us. And so it's the church as a whole to steward this mystery and we are to be a people together on a mission, not just individually, individuals doing our things, which is why we you know, encourage you to be here on a Sunday, get involved in life groups um, to make community. And the last one there, the church is central to Christian living. What Paul is going to launch into after his prayer, the end of um, chapter 3 is chapters 4, 5 and 6. And basically chapters 4, 5 and 6 are the practical outworkings of what he's done in chapters 1, 2 and 3. So 1, 2 and 3 effectively is theology. Chapters 4, 5, 6 is basically the practical outworkings of it. So it's, you've got to believe this, you've got to understand this, you've got to grapple with this and the, the result is you act and you live like this. You can't have one without the other and the, 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 um, the order is important. Start with the kind of change your mind, change your thinking, grapple with these truths, and then as a result, live like this. And so the church is central to that. As we mature and grow in Christ, I don't think Christians can grow in maturity on their own. Because even if they're reading their Bible and praying, they've got, they, they need somewhere to work it out, to talk it out practically. And that's what the church is for. That's why God designed the church. There is no plan B. If the church doesn't work, that's it but the good news is we know it's going to work. And I know every individual church has its quirks, has its um, kind of imperfections. I know we have less than others. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, but they all do. They all do. No church is perfect. If you find the perfect church, please do not join it, because then it won't be perfect anymore. Um, but, so they've all got them but we are called to be part, to embrace it, to get involved in it, to give ourselves to it. And whether you're here and um, you want to get involved in this local church, is great. If you're a visitor from elsewhere, get stuck into one in your locality, a local church that you can give yourself to and be a part of. Okay, two little bits of homework for you. The first one is um, what we're going to be holding on the 15th of April. We will tell you more about this. It's a Sunday evening at, at our house. Is we're going to be doing uh, a, a vision and values evening for people who've come to the church um, over the last few, three, four, five months to talk to you about effectively what we're about as a church, um, kind of go through what God's brought us to, what God's set us to, our vision, um, our values we hold dear, a bit of on our kind of our beliefs and uh, also our expectations kind of of members of getting involved and we're going to put that together and just say it plain. I preached on it but it feels like a long time ago and I know with lots of new people coming in we want to get everyone on the same page. So that's 15th of April at 8 o'clock at our house. Mel's written on my notes here, that's her handwriting, 8pm for cake. So even if you think, well, vision value, cake. My wife makes homemade ones and they're really good. Um, so come along to that, hear about what we're about and kind of make the commitment to get involved or even if you hear that and you think this isn't the place for me, that's fine. But we're going to lay out where we're going and we're going to say sign up, join up, come with us. Um, and the other thing is um, a book I'd like to recommend which I left in here. Excuse me. I hope I brought it. I did. Um, I think I've recommended this before, but I'll recommend it again. The Spirit-Filled Church by Terry Virgo. Um, Terry Virgo kind of leads the movement of churches we're a part of. It's, a just, it's an excellent book that just kind of, it talks about the church generally, but also what local churches should look like. Some things, we, we hold all this stuff dear. Um, 
about how we should be, some of the things we are we think is important, the grace of God, um, the use of spiritual gifts, um, the role of, of members serving the church, not all being done by kind of the clergy, if you will. We believe every member is called to serve and play their part within the body. So if you haven't read that, grab that, read that will help you kind of grasp what we're about on a kind of wider sense. But that's it for us um, today. I'm just going to pray. Can someone, Becca, do you mind going and telling them um, what's going to happen? That we've finished. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have revealed this mystery to us. What was hidden has now been unveiled. We recognize that we wouldn't know this unless you showed us. Lord, we can't do it without you. We can't do it without your spirit in us. Oh God, it's all about you. Lord, we thank you for this precious gift that you've given us, the gospel, that we are to steward. We thank you for making us part of the church. We thank you for your plan was the church, your body, and that you have brought men and women of all backgrounds together to serve you. Uh, Lord God, and we want to take that commission seriously to go and proclaim this message um, to our watching world, Lord, through our lives, how we act with one another, but also through our speech, what we proclaim, what we say. Lord, help us proclaim the gospel and to make it plain um, to people what they must do, Lord God. And we ask that through that you would add to us, Lord, you would transform lives, our lives, transform the lives of others, grow us into what you've called us to. Uh, Lord Jesus, we love you, we worship you, you are a wonderful and great God. And God's people said, Amen.